0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. When's the last time you used a crosswalk? Did you look both ways or did you assume cars would stop? Is it easier to just jaywalk, you know, cross the street where it's most convenient? Is jaywalking any safer than using a crosswalk? Today we explore the long-time tension that exists between pedestrians and the automobile. Now it's not a coincidence we started talking about this show after a week of pedestrian fatalities in several Connecticut cities and towns, most recently in Hamden. Coming up we'll learn about efforts to make roads safer from the Netherlands to San Francisco. And we'll hear from the director of street films about how Vancouver came to be the only North American city without freeways. First, when did jaywalking become a crime? And depending on where you live, it's rarely enforced, but the term symbolizes again the tension between pedestrians and drivers. Do you avoid walking on roads without sidewalks because you fear getting hit? And when you drive, do pedestrians make you nervous? We want to hear from you this hour. 860 275 7266 You can email where we live at WMPR.org. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I'm joined now by Dr. Peter Norton. He's associate professor at the University of Virginia and author of the book, Fighting Traffic, The Dawn of the Motor Age in the American City. He joins us today from the studios of WVTF in Charlottesville, Virginia. Peter, welcome to the show.
2: Good morning, Lucy.
0: Let's talk first about um, our relationship with the road. I understand it's changed considerably over the last century. Um, What is the perception these days and how has it changed?
2: Well, you know, you walk up to a busy street these days and you assume that streets are for cars. If you're on foot, you better be careful. probably should cross at the crosswalk, wait for a signal maybe if there's a signal at it. And if you're a driver, you're thinking probably this is where I belong and you may not even expect a pedestrian to ever step into the street. And if if one does, you might feel alarmed or annoyed by it. And this is a total transformation of the street from what it was just a century ago when um, it was almost the opposite in a way. If you were driving a car, it was like you were operating a dangerous machine where other people were going to be, and and therefore you were the one who was really um, taking responsibility for doing something dangerous. and And a pedestrian walking into the street was actually using a street for exactly what it was meant for. It was meant for Pedestrians, for vehicles, for streetcars, cyclists, pushcart vendors, newspaper salesmen, um, shoe shiners—all kinds of people were using streets, and they used their own informal common sense a lot more than they paid attention to formal rules, and that—and that's a complete change.
0: When we look at um, how a lot of people, cars, uh, carriages, streetcars, had to share the road, there were quite a bit of pedestrian fatalities back then at the turn of the century. Tell us about that.
2: Roads were a dangerous place, um, and they got more dangerous when automobiles started arriving because those machines went faster than most other street users, and um, some drivers had the attitude that. All they had to do was honk the horn and and everybody was supposed to get out of their way and other people thought that was very obnoxious. And um, people grew up expecting vehicles never to go more than about 10 or 12 miles an hour and as soon as a vehicle was going faster than that, their judgments weren't really attuned to that. And also parents were used to sending their children out in – especially in cities without a lot of parks or playgrounds, the children would play – on the sidewalk, they'd cross the streets. Sometimes they played in the streets. This was perfectly normal. But when cars came along, this was uh, also also very dangerous. And people, in particular children, were often hit, injured, killed by cars. And what's maybe most striking when you look back at the accounts of these events is how much the blame went on the driver and the blame went on the vehicle. Um, the blame was not directed at the parents or the pedestrian who was hit. Um, And the newspapers, all kinds of newspapers, the liberal newspapers, the conservative newspapers, the mainstream newspapers, generally all blamed the car and the driver. So the city was not a friendly place for automobiles and drivers.
0: I I see there's a term J driver that came before the J walker. What's the difference? That's right.
2: (laughs) Well, if you were a pedestrian trying to cross the street, And you were annoyed because drivers were coming along, going fast and tooting their horns, you were going to think of hostile terms to call these these, uh, drivers. And there were a bunch of them, uh, Joyrider, Roadhog, and J-Driver was a popular one. So the word J, we've really lost. It used to mean – it was an offensive term for an uneducated rural person like a farmer or a hick, you might say today, except it was really harsher than that. And so the idea was if you were driving around in the city like you would drive on a deserted country road without paying attention to pedestrians, then you were uh, somebody who didn't know how to drive in the city. You were a J driver and so this was one of several terms to express the pedestrians used to express their annoyance at uh, aggressive drivers.
0: I'm speaking with Peter Norton. He's an associate professor at the University of Virginia, author of Fighting Traffic, The Dawn of the Motor Age in the American City. Today we're talking about pedestrian safety, um, how to make our roads safer, and we're looking at the history of that term jaywalking. So, uh, Peter, when did, when did it become commonplace to then uh, give the, the side eye to a pedestrian who didn't, that was crossing the road, and, and how did the automobile industry uh, play into that?
2: Well, the annoyance was pretty mutual almost from the beginning. Drivers were feeling annoyed by pedestrians who were striding into the street wherever they wanted. But all of the official judgments were on the side of the pedestrian. The courts, the newspapers, letters to the editor of newspapers, juries, all tended to side, the traffic police even, all tended to side with the pedestrians. And for very good reason, that is that the street was legally defined as a public space, kind of like a a park is. Anybody can use it and they just need to use it safely. And of course, pedestrians don't endanger other people the way drivers do. Now, this started to shift because drivers wanted to be able to drive safely in the street. They wanted to be able to keep going without having to stop every five seconds. They didn't want to be subjected to extremely low speed limits that were common in the era and that reflected the notion that streets are really for everybody and not just for drivers. And through their local organizations, these are the the sort of progenitors of the American Automobile Association, these local auto clubs were places where they could start to organize to exert some influence and change The norms of the street in their favor. And so you can see, um, beginning around 1910, auto club members and auto clubs starting to shift the um, pressure back at pedestrians. It takes them a while, um, but one of the techniques they found most effective was to make fun of or ridicule pedestrians who walked however they chose. And one of their most effective terms of ridicule for this was J. Walker, which was them taking the word J. Driver and turning it around and, and sort of throwing it back at the pedestrian. And it took about a decade for this word to really start to catch on. But the reason it did catch on was because of automobile interest groups like auto clubs really trying hard to get this word into circulation.
0: And so now we see that that jaywalking, um, you can be fined for it, especially in places like New York City. Um, but have we shifted the conversation at all? Like when we hear about a pedestrian getting hit or killed, uh, maybe um, in the 20s to 50s, uh, the, the assumption was, well, were they jaywalking? It was a, the blame on them. But now we hear so much about distracted driving, and so then, are we seeing the shift again, blaming the driver for when something like this happens?
2: I think you see these shifts going back and forth constantly, uh, although one side tends to get the advantage for a period of time, as you suggested. So um, until the early 1920s, the pedestrians definitely had the advantage. They had the advantage in the courts, and they had the advantage in the court of public opinion, too. And um, one of the things that helped shift this in favor of drivers was when the first laws start to get on the books that actually require pedestrians to concede the right of way to drivers except at crosswalks um the this comes in kind of gradually because you sometimes see this appearing on the books but not being enforced but the first place where you see a, a no jaywalking ordinance getting on the books and getting enforced and starting to really change behavior is in Kansas City in 1911 and it spreads fairly quickly from there um by nineteen fourteen cities are painting crosswalks on the on the pavements and starting to require pedestrians to stay in them and they They can sell this to pedestrians by saying, "You know this is your safe place to cross. Uh, you have the right of way here, but there's a price to pay for this this right of way, which is that you lose um access to the street elsewhere. And as you suggested in, in some of the questions you asked in the opening of the show, you know, there are times when it actually feels safer if you're a pedestrian to cross in the middle of the block. You you don't have cars turning around corners coming at you from three or four different directions. You can uh, have just look for cars coming from two different directions. So, you know, to a lot of pedestrians, it's, it is a loss to... Um, lose the right to make those judgments for yourself.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpothanchel. We've been talking about jaywalking with Peter Norton, associate professor at the University of Virginia, author of Fighting Traffic, The Dawn of the Motor Age in the American City. It's part of a bigger conversation we're having today on ways we can make our neighborhoods, our cities safer. Does that conversation start by considering the needs of pedestrians or the needs of drivers? Depending on where you live, modern planning often prioritizes the car over the pedestrian, but that has been changing in recent years. We'll learn more from Europe and the West Coast right after the break. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're looking at pedestrian safety and how it relates to planning safe roadways and incorporating mass transit options to get more people out of their cars. Now that's a tough sell in many U.S. towns and cities. After all, cars are convenient when mass transit options are few and far between. Now how do you make roads safer? Crosswalks often pop up, but do they really work? I'm joined again today by Peter Norton, associate professor at the University of Virginia, author of Fighting Traffic, The Dawn of the Motor Age in the American City. Um, now, Peter, you talked a little bit about crosswalks before the break, but um, you mentioned that maybe the first crosswalk was happening in the, around the t- 1920s. How has that crosswalk changed from then to now and what they look like?
2: Well, I, I should point out that actually crosswalks are a lot older than that. It's just that crosswalks, as we would recognize them as painted zones on the street, really date back to the about 1914 are the first ones that you see. But crosswalks are actually much older, even by that name, um, when streets were paved with stone block. Painting lines on them didn't make uh, wouldn't work so well, but they had actually used they used different stones to indicate where the crosswalk was, and those stones were higher than the rest of the pavement so that they would be drier, they would be cleaner, less slippery and uh, and so there were crosswalks, and there was a notion that this is where you will expect pedestrians to be, even though the law didn't say the pedestrians um had to be there now. The crosswalks, as we think of them, as like the only place you're supposed to cross the street in a busy neighborhood, yeah, that really does start in the teens and 20s about 100 years ago. And, yeah, you, I, th- I think it, you see a, t- a two-sided effect there. One is, of course, the pedestrians feel a little safer in the crosswalk, but the other is drivers stop thinking about pedestrians anywhere else, and this lets the speed limits be higher, which... Might be nice if you 're a driver, but kind of reinforces the notion that if you 're a pedestrian you're really your options for um, crossing the street are limited, and finding a a crosswalk at a reasonable distance from where you are can be hard or waiting for the signal to change when you 're a pedestrian who 's already going slow may be pretty burdensome for you so i th- I think a lot of things do change thanks to um the crosswalk as we understand it coming along.
0: Now, I understand there's lots of uh, innovative crosswalk designs in in 2016. Uh, Joining us now is Peter DeWild. He's sales manager at Lighted Zebra Crossing and he's calling us from the Netherlands. Peter, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, Lucy. Thank you.
0: So tell us about your company and how did you come up with this uh, innovative crosswalk design? Uh, Tell us what you came up with.
3: Yes, we're a quite new company called Startup. And the idea is, uh, uh, in fact, by coincidence, Uh, some years ago, uh, there was a contest for children. And one of the questions was, what do we need to do to improve your safety in in traffic? And uh, the winning uh, uh, slogan was, uh, develop a zebra crossing with light integrated. And uh, the founder of our company was asked to make a kind of dummy uh, uh, crosswalk for a television commercial, uh, which was uh, lighted. And uh, he developed it, and um, uh, he uh, showed it in some cities in the Netherlands and in Belgium. And the response was, uh, was huge, was very positive. And then he decided to, uh, to develop uh, the real product, a lighted uh, zebra crossing.
0: When you say lighted zebra crossing, so it's an LED lit crosswalk? It looks kind of almost like uh, the piano keys are lit up?
3: Uh, <clears throat> yeah, something like that. The, the white stripes of the zebra crossing are filled with uh, uh, elements with light uh, panel. So the, the zebra crossing is very good visible uh, in advance for the, for, the, for the cars, for the drivers, but also the people who are crossing the zebra are uh, kind of lighted from, from below. So they are very good visible for the, for the uh, drivers.
0: I'm curious about in the Netherlands. You know, is there a lot of talk about uh, pedestrian safety? Are you seeing a lot of fatalities? You know, here in Connecticut, in the Northeast, you know, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen, you know, um, several uh, people that have been walking on the road and have been hit and killed. And I'm just curious um, what the the conversation is over in the Netherlands before you came up with this product.
3: No, the situation is not uh, similar as it is in your country. Uh, what we learned uh, in the meantime is that. In the Netherlands, the situation is quite safe for pedestrians uh, because we have a lot of facilities for pedestrians, Uh, but beside that, there's a market for, let's say, the lighted uh, zebra crossings. But what we learned in the meantime is that in uh, the United States, uh, many Vision Zero projects are uh, running because uh, of the many fatal accidents on yearly uh, base. Um, so let's say the market for us is not only for the Netherlands or Belgium, but uh, in fact uh, the American market is quite interesting
0: uh, for us. Oh, really? What cities in the U.S. are interested?
3: Well, I cannot name <laughs> the, the real cities, but uh, some of the biggest uh, cities we have contact right now. And what we uh, like to do is to make some uh, pilot uh, uh, placements. So people can get used to it and have experience uh, in the behavior of the uh, pedestrians, but also the behavior of the uh, automobilists. Mm
0: -hmm. Also uh, joining us by phone is Andrea Aiello. She's executive director of the Castro Upper Market Community Benefit District. Also some unusual and uh, unique crosswalk designs over on the West Coast. Uh, Andrea, welcome to the show. Good morning. So tell us about Castro's rainbow crosswalks. Um. So the rainbow crosswalks
4: are um, uh, stripes of. Um, they call it the material is a, is called thermoplastic paint, it, but it really is not a paint. It's um, um, almost like asphalt colored strips of colored asphalt that are um, melted into um, into the existing um, asphalt pavement. Um, so they will last for thirty or forty years. Um, and there's so there are rainbow stripes going the long way um, across um, the all four crosswalks at 18th and Castro, which is kind of considered the the heart of the Castro but um, also a very dangerous intersection. Um, we the the organization I work for um, decided to pay to put these in these decorative crosswalks in um, in combination with the city of San Francisco's effort to um, widen the sidewalks on two blocks of Castro Street between market and 19th. Um, so this effort was was finished in um, the fall of 2014 and um, it was as far as pedestrian safety is concerned, I don't have any um, of the latest MTA data, but um, anecdotally, I know that um, before, the rainbow crosswalks were put in and before the sidewalk widening project, there were regularly, at least once a year, um, some kind of accident between a vehicle and a pedestrian in those crosswalks. And since 2014, um, I don't think there's been one. Um, the crosswalks were done in combination with a couple of other pedestrian safety improvements at that corner, including some bulb outs and a left-hand-only turn um, lane for cars going um, southbound, but um, it was part of a package mm-hmm. that I think um, did improve the pedestrian safety at that corner.
0: And what has been the response from the community?
4: Oh, the community loves the rainbow crosswalks, and um, we actually had a contest, not a contest, but people voted to um, pick the design that they wanted. There were four different options. Two were rainbow colors, and other the other two were um decorations that reflected different aspects of um iconic images in the neighborhood um so the um we did a vote kind of in person in in one of the little pedestrian plazas over a weekend and we also did an online vote and um both the online and the in-person um results were 42 percent um wanted the rainbow crosswalks out of out of the four um and so we went with with them the um whole reason why we did my organization paid for this was because um some kind of decorative crosswalk as part of the streetscape improvement project with the widening of the sidewalks was um the second most um highest rated the community wanted as far as public realm improvements the first one was trees the city paid for the trees as part of their project and but the decorative crosswalk was out of the city budget so my organization um... Paid. Um, for that to happen as part of the project.
0: This is where we live, I'm Lucy nalpa Today we're talking about pedestrian safety and uh, we just heard from Andrea Aiello, Executive Director of the Castro Upper Market Community Benefit District. They've unveiled in uh, rainbow crosswalks. Also, Peter Devild, sales manager at Lighted Zebra Crossing out of the Netherlands. They have uh, LED lit crosswalks. I wanted to turn back to Peter Norton who's Associate Professor at the University of Virginia. Um, So innovative crosswalks, uh, getting people to notice that they're there, How effective are these crosswalks, whether uh, they're the traditional uh, ones we see around our towns and cities, Peter?
2: Well, there's an interesting sort of two-sided coin element to this thing where – and incidentally, I've seen both of the crosswalks of your other guests uh, through pictures, and they're gorgeous. But there is a a, a sort of built-in risk, which is that the minute you make the crosswalks much more vibrant and attractive and interesting – which is something that that people have been trying now for for many decades. Um, Like, for example, England introduced the Belisha Beacon, which is a sort of lighted globe at each end on a post uh, at the crossing um, back about 70 years ago. And these, of course, make the crosswalk safer for the pedestrian, but they also can give the driver the implicit message that they don't have to pay any attention for pedestrians anywhere else. So in in effect, it, it's, it's like shaking the driver into attention at one point and then sort of letting them lapse into uh, an even lower level of alertness elsewhere because their sort of threshold for attention getting has been increased. And it's interestingly in the Netherlands that you see some of the most interesting work to look at this from the other angle, which is to say what happens if we get rid of all of the crosswalks? What happens if we get rid of all of the signs and signals to drivers to watch out for pedestrians? This has been famously tried in the Netherlands in the form of shared space where they make streets open to everybody as they used to be, including pedestrians and drivers alike. And what they find is that the driver's become much more alert everywhere, which is good news for pedestrians and and another approach. And there's probably plenty of room for both kinds of approaches.
0: So to be more aware of pedestrians, maybe it's a, a, a time to encourage jaywalking.
2: Yeah, in other words, what if you make a street a place where everybody's always welcome, and it's very clear that that's the case because you don't have any special designated markings for anybody, including for drivers, you really make drivers feel much more responsible. And so some safety experts caution that any infrastructure that makes pedestrians and drivers safer – has the unintended effect of making the drivers feel less responsible for safety of themselves and others. And so their approach is to, is to increase the responsibility of drivers, is to take away every such um, fixture, every such marking, uh, and, and so on. And I, I suspect there's, there's room for both kinds of approaches, but, but, um, but we do have that choice.
0: We're getting a tweet from a listener. Brendan writes, walking on unsidewalked suburban road, a small act of political rebellion. Another tweet from Rebecca, in Poland, we were told never to jaywalk. Big fines if anyone did. People wait for the light. No cars to be heard or seen. Uh, So that's interesting perspective um, over in Europe. But I want to thank Peter Norton again. He's associate professor at the University of Virginia, author of Fighting Traffic, The Dawn of the Motor Age in the American City. He joined us today from the studios of WVTF in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, thank you for your time, Peter.
2: My pleasure, Lucy. It was also a thrill to meet both of your guests today, Andrea and Peter, as well. So uh, my pleasure.
0: And Peter Deville, is sales manager at Lighted Zebra Crossing out of the Netherlands. Uh, Peter, we'll be looking for your uh, LED-lit crosswalk soon in, in the States, I hope. Yeah,
3: we hope so. <laughs> you will, You will see it, absolutely.
0: Thank you again for your time. And Andrea Ayello, Executive Director of the Castro Upper Market Community Benefit District. Um, they've uh, unveiled and are using rainbow crosswalks in, in certain parts of the neighborhood. Andrea, thank you for your time.
4: Oh, you're most welcome. It was my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Now, coming up, is it possible for a city in the 21st century to not have freeways? Well, Vancouver did it. We'll find out more from the director of street films. That's coming up. But first, do you love the conversations you hear on Where We Live? You can support this show and WNPR. It's our end-of-the-year fundraiser. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nolpethanchel. Coming up Thursday, the Caribbean, its islands, its history, its people, all have had a profound influence on communities around the globe, including here in Connecticut. On the next Where We Live, we talk to author Joshua Jelly Shapiro about his new book, Island people join us that's Thursday now today we're talking pedestrian safety now one way to make roads safer is to get fewer drivers mass transit options are key can you imagine a Hartford without I 84 cutting through it joining us now by phone is Clarence Eckerson jr. he's director of street films and I understand he's sometimes referred to as the hardest working man in transportation showbiz Clarence welcome to the show (laughs)
1: thank you very much
0: when did you when did you uh, start uh, the the showbiz part of of your job
1: (laughs) Uh, I'd say officially maybe 2005. Uh, somebody came up to me the year after I'd been doing this and uh, said that to me about the transportation showbiz. But I've been doing uh, documentary films or things kind of on my own for since the mid-90s, been making short films.
0: So street films, what's your mission?
1: Well, we're a nonprofit, and uh, our goal is to enlighten and educate people about biking, walking, transit, transportation, transportation. Um, open space and livable streets in mostly cities and we've done 800 films and I've personally done about 600 of those over the last uh, 10 plus years and they're just videos that we have online that people are able to use for free to, um, you know, show in their communities or show to their local politicians or communities, uh, uh, fellow neighbors and to try to make their cities better.
0: So you travel all over the world, how do you find these stories these cities that, that you want to profile?
1: Well, it's a really a mix of kind of you know factors, but mostly I'm really kind of out there looking for what's the newest thing, what's the newest twist uh, you know what's the new policy that a city's doing or what's somebody doing that's innovative uh, versus uh, you know old school and uh, you know so that that brings me. Luckily, to a lot of really cool places,
0: cool places like Vancouver. That's why we invited you on today. Uh, they're the only North American city without freeways. How did that happen?
1: Well, it's interesting in the '60s, and I didn't. I always knew that Vancouver was the only North American place that didn't have any highways. I didn't know exactly how and why, and I figured it was probably something to do with a lot of places in the '60s. Uh, you know, tried to rail against the car and, and stop freeways in their cities, but uh, they just never really built them in the inner belt inside their, you know, the the, the inner city. And um, there was just one point when um, they were trying to build some along the the waterways there. And uh, I, I didn't even know the story, but I just uncovered it while I was there for myself, while I was talking to a gentleman named Andrew McCurron, who we happened to be doing some filming uh, of something called the Sea Bus, which is a um, um, a ferry high-capacity ferry that goes back and forth uh, across the water up there uh, in the bay and found out that that actually had replaced plans to build a giant multi-level freeway that would uh, go across the bay. And people decided to want, that they wanted that instead of, uh, you know, a network of freeways. So that's kind of the basis, the, the one main point when they decided they didn't want freeways. But I think they, they had some other plans as well that they were able to forego.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. I'm speaking with Clarence Eckerson, Jr., director of Street Films. Now, in your film, we hear from former Vancouver chief planner Brett Totterin. here's what he had to say about this rejection of the freeways, as you mentioned, in the 60s and 70s and the impact that it has had on Vancouver.
2: That rejection of the freeways led up to uh, building a different model of people living downtown, multimodal city making that really culminated with Expo 86, which had a theme of transportation of the future. And it led to, a, a, as a catalyst, a lot of the transformation of the waterfront that we're now fairly famous for.
0: So because it's freeway-free, um, how did Vancouver uh, move forward with, you know, you mentioned the C-bus. I'm curious, you know, how many um, you know people ride their bikes uh, uh, to work and, and, to, and travel and what impact they've seen on uh, traffic?
1: Well, anybody who's been to Vancouver, and i had been there a few times in the past 15 years, it's a lovely city. In fact, it's, you know, famous in Hollywood for and, and television for doubling for cities, especially New York City um and it's very pedestrian friendly um very nice beautiful place to be uh but they decided early on uh that you know they should make their city as 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 open to people as possible and and i don't think they had such a grand plan back then in the 60s but uh that kind of jump started the fact that they did not want their place overrun with cars. And one thing they've done probably in the last eight, nine years is get more serious about getting people on bikes. And they have a plan by the year 2040 to get 66% of all people on either bicycling, walking, or taking transit. Uh, they had a goal in 2020 to get that to 50%, but they've actually succeeded in uh, getting to that number four years early. And one of the main goal- reasons was they were able to very quickly get more people riding bikes by putting in protected bike lanes, putting in a concentrated bike network. They just recently added bike share, and um, you can see it on the streets. I mean, uh, there are many people bicycling, and usually a good sign that there are a lot of people bicycling in your city is that you see you go beyond the hardcore male athletes riding in their you know spandex gear <laughs> to work and there it's you see children you see mothers you see older people riding bikes so uh their current mode share during the commute hours on uh, monday through friday is 10 percent of all people are riding bikes and that's pretty incredible for a north american city mm.
0: It does sound pretty incredible. And, you know, I'm wondering, I know Vancouver was the site of the 2010 Winter Olympics. We're talking about, you know, a lot of people coming into the city. You know, how did then the city plan to get them around?
1: Well, I think they knew, first of all, without having major highways and a lot of uh, streets that carry uh, an immense amount of cars, that they had to get inventive. And they just thought right off the bat, well, you know, we can't move people by car. We can't move the athletes. We can't move people coming to our city. So they were shutting down parts of downtown to vehicles entirely or doing transit routes to get people, uh, you know, to, to move people. And I think, you know, it sounds largely like they succeeded. And they also helped spur, you know, a lot of events like these kind of get cities thinking you spend many years planning for an event like the the Olympics, and it starts to make you think, well, you know, where else can we build residential uh, towers and and housing, and Mm -hmm. what are we doing with our transit? Are we making the right decisions, and we have some funding available here? So I think big events like these um, do make cities think big, Mm -hmm. and even here in New York City, you know, we had a failed bid for the Olympics a few years ago, and where they were planning to put the athletes' village, you're now seeing lots of, of of housing and lots of real estate going up and lots of planning and parks. So I think this kind of can happen in any city, even if you don't host an Olympics. Mm.
0: That's interesting. Now, I'm wondering, you know, in, in Connecticut, when we think about um, uh, drivers, you know, it's it's also a source of revenue, right? So we've got the car tax, we have a gas uh, tax, um, you know, it's revenue that the state uh, wants and needs. Um, when you don't have as many people driving in a place like Vancouver, I mean, how do they pay for all of this? You know, the C buses, the, I know your train system, the train system there in Vancouver is very robust.
1: Well, I mean, you know, it's just a decision of the, the government. I mean, they've they decided to prioritize all these other modes, um, you know, they have right now. Uh, they just opened up a transit line that's driverless, and um, it's the longest one in the world. So, you know, they're trying different things. They they have small water taxis all around. You see them with these multi rainbow colored uh, uh, insignias on the side. Uh, you know, again, they they have the bike share. They have they have car share. They have um, they have buses that are really very well done and um, you know a good network of, of transit lines and they're always thinking of, of what's next so i think that's that's important to the city uh, not to get stuck in their thinking and to always be looking to well what else can we do and i think you're seeing that all across the united states even now um, most good cities are really trying to plan for the future
0: Can you give us an example? I know, I mean, New York City obviously has different options, but, you know, what are some other cities that are are planning for the future, not stuck, as you mentioned?
1: Well, I mean, right now, uh, you know, uh, Washington, D.C. has an amazing uh, bike share system, and they are doing great stuff with uh, the amount of people bicycling. New York City, we have protected bike lanes on almost half the major avenues now. Uh, You know, just a few years ago, we had very few. Um, So, we are looking in New York at we are adding plenty more um, ferries, lots of ferry service on the East River, as a way to get people around. Um, so there are so many things out there. Uh, you know, uh, we're always in so many different cities. In Seattle, they have been increasing through voter referendums in the last two years. They both passed, but uh, nearly 60% of the vote. Uh, adding money for transit, adding money for buses. And in Seattle, they are planning a great network of light rail and subway-esque kind of uh, a a grid to cover the city. But in the meantime, uh, right now, the bus is king there, and they have amazing plans. They have seen 25% increase on some of their bus lines because they've been uh, giving priority to buses on, on, on streets and creating dedicated lanes and doing innovative things like bus queue jumps where a bus can come up to the light and it has its own special lane where it can bypass, you know, two lanes of traffic with 10, 20 cars backed up and they get a priority to go ahead of those cars when the light goes. So cities are trying to, you know, kind of keep up and since cities are growing so much, they really need to find ways of getting more people around because You know, the number of roads we have is limited. So you need to start looking at the corridors and say, how can we move more people? That's Mm -hmm. the end game. Mm -hmm. So
0: cities are thinking about it. But when we look at political will and what's happening with uh, Congress, our our new president elect talking about investment infrastructure, very highway focused, what's it going to take to be more forward thinking?
1: Well, uh, you know, with the whole new administration coming in, we still don't know exactly what their plans are. But most people do think, like you said, that it's going to be highway-based along those nature. And I think, again, this comes up to cities rising up, cities and states um, saying we don't want to spend our money that way or we've got a better idea or, you know, flat out saying we are going to possibly increase the amount of money – we have to raise to make our subways better our buses our our waterways, our bicycling infrastructure. The good thing is I think right now we we have cities uh along the East Coast and the west coast, especially that are pretty well along in their plans what they want to do. so I think you know it may come up to creative accounting or you know maybe you know getting the people's ear at, at in the federal government to say. Are you really sure you want to do this? And I think, you know, we're going to be spending a lot of time the next four years saying that.
0: I've been speaking with Clarence Eckerson, Jr., director of Street Films. Um, We profiled one of the films uh, that you uh, produced out of Vancouver. What do you hope people will take away from that film?
1: Well, I think, you know, especially in the alternative transportation, livable streets world, people tend to think that we are lovers, which we are, of the bicycle. Uh, but they but they don't realize that it really is a complete picture. We really want to increase the number of people walking and biking and, and, and taking transit. And Vancouver is a great example of how they really set about doing it right. Fifty percent is a great uh, number. Many cities across the United States would be so happy with that. Um, so we need to kind of push stories like that out into the public and say, this is should be our model. We don't want to get rid of the car, but we want to increase the number of people that can use our roadways efficiently. And with cities just exploding in population, uh, that's the future. And if we cannot accommodate people, we are going to just have worse and worse roadways for even the people that drive.
0: And if we want to see your films. Where do we go?
1: Uh, well, www.streetfilms.org uh, there are over 800 um, again they're free for people to use to show their communities and again enlighten people uh, we love to spread the message we love to see people um, hosting their own film festivals or uh, things in theaters I've recently been to Albany, New York where they hosted us and we're up in um, Vancouver and in Seattle so um, please watch the films, and spread our
0: message. Clarence Eckerson, Jr., the hardest working man in transportation showbiz, thank you for your insight today.
1: Oh, you're welcome.
0: And if you appreciate programs on Where We Live, we want to hear from you with your support here, two of my colleagues, to tell you how. And thanks for listening.